Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Yael Schoenbrunn. Yael is a psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, co-host of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast, and author of Work, Parent, Thrive. In the episode, Yael discusses how to adopt a work-family enrichment mindset, how getting clear about our values can help us feel more in alignment with our actions, how to practice addition by subtraction, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Yael. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Yael. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so honored to be your guest. I love your podcast, your show, and I'm really excited to talk with you today. And it's very fun to have a fellow closet recorder <laughs> because we're both in our closets right now for those who, well, nobody would be able to see us because this is a podcast, but it's rare that you come across a fellow podcaster these days who also records in their closet. So I feel already a kindred connection with you. <laughs> there is definitely a kinship, but for those of you who are interested in podcasting, closet acoustics are really terrific. <laughs> exactly. And I have a friend who he does really like big stuff with podcasts. He does PBS, Nova podcasts and all these things. He's a doctor. And when he's traveling on the road, he will be in a hotel. And then he has hacks even of putting the big comforter from the hotel room over a desk and then he'll sit under the desk and so in the tiny little space under there but he has the comforter over the whole thing so it's good acoustics and there's all these hacks you can do yeah. depending on where you are but yeah. yeah for now a closet works great and <laughs> until I have you know the space and money to buy it or build a podcast studio this will be just fine <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and even then you'll want to surround yourself with lots of soft things. And <laughs> For sure. Exactly. <laughs> well, I would love if you could start off by sharing your background with us and specifically what inspired you to write your incredible book, Work, Parent, Thrive. Thank you. Uh, so I was inspired to write it because I became a working parent. And as anybody who is a working parent knows, it it's surprising how hard it is. And I the other part of my background is that I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I started out in in pretty hardcore research and was on my postdoctoral fellowship when I became a mom. So it's probably no surprise that when I struggled, I turned to books and to science to figure out how I was going to navigate this whole thing. And what I found in the bookstores and the libraries was not quite what I was looking for as a clinical psychologist because 
much of what was talked about in those kinds of, in, in that kind of literature was more about the systemic constraints and, and problems, which are absolutely real, or the ways that we can be more efficient with our time use, which, which is also very helpful. But because I'm interested in the sort of internal workings of the human mind, I was really looking for something that kind of spoke to the identity shift and how we can use tools from psychology to navigate a happier working parenthood. And I'm also particularly interested in positive psychology and much of what is talked about in the working parent conversation that is ongoing feels really disheartening. And it's not that it I want to pretend that things are easy, but it's more that I love the tools from psychology that really help us take a really tough situation and move it forward and try to extract what goodness we can, as well as build more goodness into the systems around us. Um, I find that kind of message quite empowering, and it felt like it wasn't really available in what was out there. And so what I found in academic literature and the scientific literature really did speak to that. And so I use that to craft this book, which hopefully provides a more optimistic view in a realistic way about working parenthood. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a lot of books kind of tackle systemic issues. I guess where has traditional advice for working parents kind of missed the mark? Is that a lot of it is focused more on systemic stuff or just, I guess, to be more specific, like where were you frustrated in the advice you were getting? It is that it is more systemically focused, which I think from an individual just going about their day feels pretty disempowering because if you're not actually a policymaker, it feels like there's very little that you can do to create uh, family leave or to create different kinds of workplace um, infrastructure. The other part of it that I think was frustrating to me and that felt like it was, the mark was getting missed in what was available is that there's this kind of impression that we can solve the problems of working parenthood through outside-in solutions. And again, from my perspective as a clinical psychologist, that just didn't seem quite right to me. And if you think about it from this more peeled back perspective, if you are somebody who inhabits lots of demanding roles and you care about those roles, there's something that's just fundamentally inevitable about feeling some conflict from time to time, feeling a tension between those roles because we care to show up for our kids and our families and we care to really dedicate ourselves to our jobs. And inevitably, we're going to feel tension between those roles. And it's not really the fault of the system at some level that we're going to feel that. And so pretending or or sort of tricking ourselves into thinking if only we had a better system, then we wouldn't feel the pain, I think is a mistake and sets us up to feel constantly frustrated. And then when, you know, there is progress in the outside world and we're still frustrated, the danger is that we then blame ourselves, which is also problematic. Mm. And so taking this more psychological point of view to me is really helpful to kind of disentangle what part of it is the system that's failing us and then what part of it is just fundamentally human. The other part that is really important to me and, and hopefully comes through in the book is that the tension is not all bad. And in fact, I draw a lot on Eastern philosophy, in particular Taoism. And there's this idea, and you know, most people are familiar with the symbol of yin and yang. And mm-hmm. what that symbol represents is that forces that we often think of as being in conflict with one another actually exist in really complementary ways. So you might think of predator and prey being in conflict, but actually the tension between them keeps environments and ecosystems in balance, in, in harmonious balance. The same thing is actually true, and this is something we know from the academic literature, that the tension between our roles actually helps us create more balance and harmony in really surprising ways and and in ways that we can actually take advantage of. So back to your original question about what are the ways that the advice for working parents miss the mark, it, it sets us up to try to achieve something that may not be achievable. And as we try to achieve it, we might miss out on the ways that that tension can actually serve us in really advantageous ways. Mm. And I look forward to diving into that. I know you talk about how parents can benefit from reflecting on how their two roles kind of complement each other. But as you're talking about this tension, do you find that women feel this more than men or do both sexes really feel this? I hear about it 
I hear it spoken more about women, but maybe that's just because I'm a woman and that's the lens <laughs> through which I see the world. But do men feel this too, or is it mostly women? I think there is a stereotype that is somewhat true, but also gets distorted a little bit. So I do a lot of couples therapy. That's my clinical specialty. And when I get heterosexual cisgender couples in, I often find that both partners are feeling tension just in different ways. And Hmm. if you sort of think about it from a very stereotypical way, there's a lot of guilt that women experience. And then there's a lot of financial pressure that men experience. And also if men do take on more of the caregiving roles, they feel the stigma or judgment about stepping away from work. So I, and at the same time, I do want to just acknowledge the real plethora of research that has been done that shows that women pay a higher price for becoming parents. They pay a higher price in, in their work lives. That is true as well. But it's so complicated. And I I think there there are certainly gender differences, but what this is maybe a little bit of um, circumventing the question, but I just think there are more similarities than differences. I think that working parenthood is hard for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe the tension is slightly different depending on your role or your job or your gender, but the tension exists. Yeah. And your relationship with your partner and the expectations that you have for your work life and the the preferences that you have for how you engage in, in parenting life and the kinds of kids that you have and what their needs are and how much financial resources or um, support outside the family you have. There's just so much nuance and complexity to it. Um, but certainly, you know, it's, it's hard for women. It's hard for men. It's hard for folks who have special needs. It's hard for uh, people who have real inflexibility in their jobs. There's so many factors that play into it. Mm-hmm. So getting back to that tension and how really, if you view your two roles as being able to enrich each other, I'd love to dive into that. Can you elaborate what you mean? So I don't know, maybe we just take a role in HR, somebody, let's say a woman has a role in HR, how would she kind of see that role in HR as benefiting her role as a mother and vice versa? Yeah, that's really well. I I like the specifics of HR. So if you're in HR, you're kind of assessing where people belong and how much money they should earn and, you know, the hiring process. And so there's a lot of details that you have to uh, monitor and track. And then there's a lot of interpersonal skills that you have to build in in interviewing people and placing them in jobs and then making sure that everyone is getting uh, what they need within their particular roles in a company. So there's a lot of skills that you're building, perspective taking, uh, relationship building, uh, monitoring details. And those kind of skills can feed back into your parenting role where you can use your interpersonal skills to develop a relationship with the small person that you have given (laughs) birth to. And you can also teach them how to track lots of information that that kind of um, management is a really important and useful skill throughout the development of, of a child so that they can manage their schoolwork and make sure that all the things that matter to them are, are things that they're sort of, that they're not dropping the ball on. The other thing more generally that is useful to think about in terms of how skills transfer back and forth between work and parenting roles is that if you are stepping away from parenting to go to work you're, and you're managing multiple roles, you're actually showing your child that that there is a tension in a full life of managing different roles that are demanding on you. So even that sort of zoomed out uh, version of modeling for your kid can transfer back to them in really beneficial ways. Mm-hmm. So that that what you're the question that you're asking to is more generally what I call the skill transfer effect. And, and just broadly speaking, it kind of gets to this idea that whatever role you're in, you're building skills. And we can ask ourselves, in what way does the skill that I'm building in this role feed back into my other one in beneficial ways? And again, I love that example of HR. Um, But whatever job you have, if you're listening here, you can ask yourself that kind of question. And, you know, there are so many unique and wonderful ways that our jobs can help us parent more skillfully. 
And so even if somebody feels as if their job is completely incongruent with being a parent, you're saying take a skills focused approach. So you're still like more focused on the skills in that role versus the role itself. Say a little bit more about the skills versus the role itself. Um, I guess I'm thinking, I don't know, if somebody worked in a lab under a microscope all day and maybe they feel, you know, this isn't actually helping me parent better that, you know, this role that I have, but more focus on what are the skills you're using at work and then what are the skills you bring to parenting? I guess if somebody feels like their role is completely (laughs) separate from parenting. Totally. Okay. I get, I get what you're saying. No, it's a great question. And actually in the book, I talk about it as the skills transfer effect. And more recently I've begun talking about it as more generally the transfer effect, because as just as you're saying, sometimes it's not a specific skill that transfers back into parenting in this example, but in the example that you just gave, which is, is another terrific one of being, uh, you know, working with a lab in a lab and, and maybe the skills don't transfer, maybe you're really bored or maybe you feel like it's not a valuable contribution anyway. And so it's not like you'd want that to color your parenting. But here's another way to think about it, which is it, if you're learning how to stick with something, even something that's really hard or uncomfortable, is that a skill that you're building that could mm-hmm. help you parent and teach your child well? Or is there uh, a way that you're tolerating discomfort that is uh, something that that you're really proud of having built uh, an ability to do that you could really model for your child too? So it may not be the specific skill of what your job is, but even when we're doing things that are more aversive, there's often ways that we can make meaning and, for example, build empathy and compassion, like say we're, we're really miserable. Uh, and now we have a sense of what it's like to be doing something that we absolutely hate. And guess what? Your kids are going to go through a phase like that at some point through, through their childhood where they have to do something that they really hate. And so rather than saying, well, you know, it's not that bad. Now, you know, it really is that bad and you can empathize with them. And that's a beautiful thing to be able to offer your child, too. So in a way, that might not even be a skill that you teach them, but it might just be a skill that you build, a muscle that you grow that can help you to connect with them more effectively. Mm-hmm. I guess the idea is instead of feeling like your two worlds are completely separate and then just like you're not excelling at either when you're pulled away from the other one, it's just how can you kind of blend them together so it feels like you are kind of growing as a parent, which can help inform your work role and vice versa. Is that the idea? So it kind of releases the guilt, if you will, of working. Yes, yes. And I mean, just to sort of put an image to it, if you go back to that yin and yang symbol, which is, you know, these two fish kind of wrapped around each other, the light fish has a dark eye, right? Mm. So he he's both pressing on, they're pressing on each other, but also they kind of embody each other a little bit. And that's another way that we can find benefit by not necessarily letting them totally leak into each other, but in very deliberate ways saying, okay, now I'm going to let the parenting into the work in this, in this beneficial way or, or vice versa. And we can really use our roles to help the other one be better, uh, ourselves do better, help ourselves be happier, do better for our kids. And exactly what you're saying is that this really can release some of that toxic guilt that so many parents feel. And, and to your earlier point that you know mothers are more likely to feel than fathers on average. And, and appreciating the ways that be participating in, in both of the roles can be helpful to ourselves and to our families can again, help us harness those gifts more fully. It seems that a lot of what you speak of kind of comes to your mindset around parenting. And so how you were talking about the other parenting books you were finding, and it was all kind of these external solutions where you're turning more internally and how you view your job and how it can enrich your parenting life. And if you kind of do that work internally and on your mindset, it can have really great rewards. Yeah. My ultimate goal for this book when people read it is to is to produce a mindset shift from mm-hmm. a work family conflict mindset to a work family enrichment mindset. And that's that seems sm- like small potatoes like if you are 
struggling in your working parenthood, how does thinking differently or having a different mindset help help you much? But here's where the research is really powerful. And and I, and I want to sort of distinguish this from toxic positivity because that's not what this is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a work family enrichment mindset really highlights the way that conflict is real and it's uncomfortable and we don't have to pretend otherwise. But what's helpful is to learn how to relate to it in ways that are helpful for us. Sometimes what we need to do is have tremendous self-compassion because a situation sucks. Like it, it's really unfortunate that we have to go to work and miss our kids really important dance recital or it's really frustrating when we got get called out of an important meeting that could have been linked to a promotion to go pick up our kid who was exposed to covid that there's in some ways like we don't need to make that into a positive it, it sucks and we can have self compassion and with a with this kind of enrichment mindset we can get curious about the ways that those difficult moments and the difficult and uncomfortable tension that just generally exists can help us out and again the social science in a variety of areas both in terms of skill growth and creativity and rest and happiness and stress management can teach us how to most strategically take advantage of those crappy moments and also to to grow in particular ways where our roles and our individual happiness is better served. Mm. We've both used the term guilt. Mm. Is parent guilt something that you think is inevitable or do some people experience it more than others? What's your experience with that? Mm. I love that question. I believe parent guilt is a little bit inevitable, but I have heard people say that they don't experience it. But to me, that that might just be a semantic thing. Most of the emotions that we experience as humans are ones that are pretty universal. And guilt is an emotion that exists for most people because it is a relationship protecting emotion. And we are social creatures. And so protecting our relationships is of the utmost importance. We're just wired that way through evolutionary, um, you know, mechanisms that have occurred over centuries and centuries and, and millennia, really. Functional emotion researchers study why we have particular emotions. And again, guilt is built in uh, to protect our relationships from either harm that's been done or harm that we anticipate being done. So it kind of orients us to how we can be most effective and and careful with our relationships to people that we care about or even to roles that we care about. And so to some extent, you know, if you care about your kids, which I presume you do, parent guilt might be inevitable, but we don't have to sort of succumb to it because we have lots of emotions that cue us to take care of something that sometimes is more helpful and sometimes is less helpful. So I tend to, for example, be a fairly anxious person. So my little smoke alarm of anxiety goes off a lot. And through the practices that I teach in the therapy room and through the social science that I'm really familiar with, I have developed a practice around it, which is to kind of check in, you know, is this anxiety telling me something that's really useful or is it just kind of my baseline smoke alarm, you know, (laughs) which is annoying kind of going off, but there's not really a reason like the battery is bad and I keep trying to fix it, but it keeps going off and there's nothing really to do about it. Guilt, I think we can think about in the same way. And there are some some additional tips that we can use because parent guilt is to cue us to take really good care of our kids. And again, it's a hangover from pre-modern times where if we didn't do that, our kid would be in serious mortal danger, right? If we weren't mm-hmm. really attentive to where they were and how they were doing, then they could easily be eaten by a predator or taken by the opposing tribe or whatever. But in modern times, guilt, often is that smoke alarm that cues us, but not necessarily in helpful ways. And in fact, guilt can actually cause us to parent in quite ineffective ways. There's really interesting research and many people are sort of aware that we live in this in this culture where we're kind of constantly prompted to do this per- intensive parenting, like be always monitoring, make sure your kids are always being enriched, always check on how they're feeling. And what research shows is that in that kind of culture, we're actually interfering with a lot of the developmental responsibilities that our kids have. So if every time they forget something, you you know run to give it to them, you're not allowing them to learn from their mistakes. If every time they have they fall, you 
run to pick your toddler back up, they don't learn how to get up by themselves. If every time they're disappointed, you quickly, you know, run, run out and buy the thing that they wanted, they don't learn how to tolerate disappointment, which is not going to be helpful in the long term because disappointment is part of the human experience. And so when we pay too much attention to guilt, we can act in ways as parents that are really well-meaning, but actually obstruct healthy child development. Mm. And for that reason, it's useful to kind of do the same thing with guilt that I do with my anxiety, which is to kind of pause, to notice it, and to ask, is this guilt prompting me to act in ways that are going to protect this relationship in helpful ways? Or is it prompting me to protect this relationship in ways that are ultimately less helpful? And there's also not a clear answer to that sometimes. Sometimes our kid is really going to be desperately disappointed and we don't really know what to do. And there I think it's useful to just remember that even if it's uncomfortable and you can't do something and you feel guilty about it, that that's a learning experience for you and for your kid. That sometimes relationships require this rupture, repair, repeat cycle, and that that's actually a healthy thing to be learning along with your kids too. You're not going to do it perfectly. And that is perfect, right? To not do it perfectly as a parent is exactly what you want to do. And to teach your kids along the way as you make mistakes. And part of them, part of that teaching is that you're, you're an imperfect human because you're human. Mm -hmm. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. I hear the phrase, I'm sure we all do actually, work-life balance thrown a lot, thrown around a lot for parents and non-parents alike. Is this something specifically for parents that they should be aiming for, or is there kind of a way of thinking about it that you prefer? It, it is a term that's thrown a, around a lot. I don't particularly like it, and I'll tell you why, because I think balance really, to me, identifies an outcome. Like we have achieved balance and it's almost like we're, we're done with it. Mm. It does not work that way. I mean, balance, if you think about the metaphor that I like is skiing down a hill, you don't balance and then be done with balance. You're constantly shifting your weight. And as you hit a icy patch, you're going to have to you know, move your body differently. And if you're going through the trees, you're going to have to take a different kind of care. And if you're going through deep snow or if you fall down, you're going to get back up. And so balance is this process. And I, and I see working parenthood as a, very much a process and not an outcome. So it is more useful to kind of consider what do what does each role need and how can they help each other out moment to moment, day to day and you know, developmental phase to developmental phase, rather than thinking that you can or should be able to achieve some kind of permanent balance, which is simply unrealistic. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I guess instead of work-life balance, you're aiming for work, work, work family enrichment. Yeah. Oh, work, family enrichment, right? That phrase yeah. you said, I like that. Yeah. 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 To me, I think that that's more of a processy kind of term. And again, it, it's something that you can be thinking about even when things are hard. So just if, if you're off balance, that's okay. You can still think about, okay, how can this help me in the roles that I care about even in this tough day? And by the way, I mean, I'm sort of talking about the sunny side of things. I have plenty of tough days. In fact, just last week, I really hit my wall and I was, was feeling really overwhelmed with work and really disconnected from my kids because I'd been so overwhelmed with work. This is just a part of the phase, but what's so helpful to me and, and to people that I, that 
that I've convinced to adopt this mindset is that you can take that as information. Okay, how do I want to grow from this? And it's really, it's very much like that fixed mindset versus growth mindset idea that many parents are familiar with from the research of Carol Dweck, where just because things are hard, like if you have a student who really hates math and feels unskilled at math, if they have a fixed mindset, they'll say, oh, I can't do math. Or if you have somebody really good at, at math, they say, well, I was just born this way. And that's well and good until you hit a tough patch. It's good for the, the person who thinks they're skilled. But for the person who thinks they're not skilled, it's kind of like they're, they're done before they even started. Mm. Whereas with a growth mindset, somebody who says, you know, I'm not really good at math, but I can always learn to and grow and be better than where I started. Or somebody who is good at math, who ha bombs a test says, oh, well, I guess I didn't know something on, you know, that was really important in that exam that I could, you know, go find a teacher or practice or figure out what it was that I misunderstood about the way the question was asked and I can do better next time. And that's kind of what I am seeking for people to think about with respect to working parenthood, that when things get tough, you're allowed to say that sucked and I really missed the mark and I'm feeling pretty crummy. But with that enrichment mindset, you can then ask yourself, okay, where do I want to go from here? Where, where I am right now doesn't have to be where I'm at next week or next year, so long as I really am thoughtful and curious and use science and, and various other skills that I know are helpful to help me progress you know, in, in ways that matter to me. Hmm. You use the word phase when you were talking about your really challenging work week. Do you remind yourself in that week, this is just a phase, this too shall pass? Like, is that kind of language helpful? Yes, I would say that that comes up for me and I find that helpful. As in general, I think that recognizing that when we have big feelings that they are time limited and they always pass and that when you're in them, it doesn't feel that way. That I think that is a really useful reminder. I also really... I'm, I'm, you know, there's sort of like learned helplessness where you, where you feel like, okay, it'll pass, but I don't have control over it. And I'm really into learned hopefulness, which is this idea that this really feels bad and I'm allowed to feel this way, but also what, what do I want to learn from this experience and how do I want to do it going forward so that I mitigate my risk for feeling this way, or at least make the time span that I feel this way a little bit less, or, or even that I'm able to recover it from it more efficiently. I can't remember where I read it recently, but it was something, it was probably on social media for being honest. It was probably on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right was, there with you. Yeah, I know. I, it's so hard these days because I'm like, oh, I saw this one thing, but I don't remember where. Uh, but I think it was a psychologist, if I'm remembering correctly, saying something about how when we're in a really challenging stage of life, time just really feels just like it slows down and that it's lasting forever. But then mm -hmm. two years from now, if you look back on that, it seems like it was just a quick blip on the radar yeah. and it wasn't that long at all. And that was just very helpful for me to think when we're in these really challenging phases. I mean, it does kind of feel like time slows and you're in quicksand and it's never going to end. But I guess for myself, just always reminding, reminding myself that it will eventually yeah. pass. But I like your kind of addendum to that, that we also try in that to learn and, you know, how, when this comes up again in the future, can I kind of mitigate the stress or awfulness if I learned any from anything from this that I can apply to the future if, and when it happens again. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and I love that, that Instagram finding that, you, that you're <laughs> pointing to. I haven't seen that one, but I'll have to look for it. But there, there is research, you know, in this, for example, research on flow shows that when we're really, you know, in the zone and, you know, enjoying ourselves and feeling alive and the challenges are just right, not too much, not too little, and we're feeling really engaged, time like flies, an hour mm -hmm. feels like a moment. And the opposite is true, too, that when we're playing Candyland with our kids and we're <laughs> bored out of our minds or when we're doing a work test that we absolutely detest or, or having to collaborate with a colleague who we just don't like, time feels like it is just moving like one second, you know, is one hour, you know, takes, you know, a day. Right. So so I think that that is true. And and there are ways that we can work with that as well. Um again, part of it is self-compassion that if you're having a rough time, it's just, it's 
actually quite helpful. And research shows this to offer yourself some self-kindness, to allow yourself to feel that way and to connect to a common humanity that you're not the only one who hates their job or who feels bored out of their mind or totally frustrated in the parenting sphere. So start there. But then, you know, if time is moving really slow, you know, one way to do to handle that is to find ways to to make it better. And and this is, again, where my learned hopefulness comes in, which is that there's research showing that we can connect to our values in that space, that we can find ways to spice it up by making it more fun. Like if you're playing Candyland, turn on some music or an audio book, you know, as you're playing with your kid or chunk it up, like do shorter bits of time where you are more mindfully engaged, but that it doesn't have to be for hours at a time and break up you know, more tedious tasks with, uh, with breaks that feel more pleasurable. So there are ways to even handle that, that I think are helpful. And just to dove, come back to what you had said, doing that forward perspective taking of, okay, I'm really unhappy now, but what do I think I'll, uh, how, how do I think I'll look back on this moment or this phase of life, you know, 10 years from now? And that can help us realize that even though it feels terrible, that we might not even remember it. I mean, this is true. I don't know if anybody listening has had this experience. I have this all the time where I'll have a fight with my partner and it'll feel like everything's on the line and it's so upsetting. And then the next week, I can't for the life of me remember what we thought about. Right. And I think, you know, that forward perspective taking can help us realize that a little bit closer to the moment of this feels really important, but it probably isn't. (laughs) Right. I, the most uh, clearest uh, example that comes to mind for me is I broke my leg last year and I had to have surgery. And in that time, I mean, like you said, uh, one day felt like a month and it was moving so slow. We were having to cancel trips and it just was this awful time period. And now looking back when people ask, I'm like, oh yeah, it was just a couple of months. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> but if you just, you have kind of this amnesia and I'm sure that's part of our kind of defense mechanisms as humans yeah. that, or how people speak about childbirth, right? That you just childbirth. kind of forget and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. it wasn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the one thing that I've been thinking about recently is, you know, now that we're sort of through the worst of the pandemic and back to normal life, mostly, you know, we're starting to think about this two-year period of time where life got super weird in really different ways. And while it was going on, it felt like it was forever. But I bet five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll be like, wow, that was really two years long. That's mind-boggling. That whole thing? Like what? What pandemic? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) You said the word values. And so I'd love to talk. I know you say use values as your guide. Can you explain what you mean by that and maybe share a concrete example Absolutely. Yeah. Values are really core to an evidence-backed treatment that I practice, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it has these different core processes that all help us navigate painful, you know, sometimes what feel like intolerable circumstances and values are probably my favorite process because it provides such a useful compass when everything else sucks. So values are defined as a quality of action. They represent how you most want to show up in a given moment, in a given role, in a given context. And they, they, they're they different than goals, which represent sort of what you hope to achieve. We we're kind of talking about balance as like an outcome. So goals tend to be more the outcomes that we're going for. And if you think about the metaphor of trying to get to the top of a mountain goal, the goal would be to get to the top of the mountain, whereas the value would be how you show up for the journey moment to moment. And it might change based on context. If I'm alone, I may prioritize being really mindful of the scenery and taking my time and do, you know taking a lot of deep breaths. Or I might really prioritize the value of getting a good workout and pushing myself to get up the hill. If I'm with my best friend, I might value connecting, but I might decide to connect quietly and really listen to, you know, just our listen to the ambient sounds, or I might prioritize listening to our chatter and really connecting and catching up. So those are different values and they're, they're all good values. There's, there's not really a bad value, but it's helpful to clarify how you want to show up, what's most important to you. And again, it can change based on what's going on around you, the context, and, and the context is sometimes what's inside of you. So if all of a sudden I start to have a very severe pain, I might shift my value from being mindful to the ambient sounds to taking care of my body. Or if the weather changes and it's, there starts to be a hailstorm or an avalanche, I might 
shift from a value of getting a good workout to um, finding safety. So values are a really useful guide and clarifying them helps us to decide how we're going to handle a given situation. And I talk in the book about impossible choices. And sometimes we are, as working parents, confronted with really impossible choices. And and in those kinds of circumstances, one of the most helpful things that we can do is ask ourselves, what do we want to stand for in this moment? And there are some really useful questions, actually, that kind of relate, Brooke, back to what you just said in terms of this forward uh, perspective-taking exercise of, you know, 10 years from now, I may not think that this is so important, or I may think this is really important. And so the question I can ask myself is, when I look back on this moment or this phase 30 years from now, what would I be proud of having stood for? How would I most like uh, like how I showed up? And you can even ask it in a slightly different way that's also perspective taking, which is, what do I want to model for my kids about how I show up in this impossible choice of, you know, do I show up to their dance recital or do I really commit myself to doing uh, what the client asked and staying up, you know, late at night and getting the job done? What do I want to model for them in terms of work ethic or commitment to family or or some balance balancing, you know, middle ground between the two? Mm. Um, and and that doesn't mean that we get everything we want. I mean, sometimes impossible choices are impossible because we're disappointing all the people and and not fulfilling the roles in ways we really care to fulfill those roles. And that is really, really painful. But what's helpful to recognize is that when when it hurts, when we don't show up in ways that really matter to us, it's often informative. It's like, this really matters to me, you know, and, and that can be informative going forward of, you know, it really matters to me, for example, not to miss, you know, too many bedtimes. Okay, well, maybe I need to renegotiate some of the expectations in my work role. Or it really matters to me not to let these professional opportunities pass me by. And there are ways that I want to talk to my kid about why that's important and, and engage them in appreciating that it's important for their parent to um, you know, have a really fulfilling professional life and, you know, to support the family financially. Mm. So I, the, the values clarification isn't like a panacea, but it is helpful in making those moment to moment choices about how you show up. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, speaking of values, I know you talk about the value of subtracting. Can you mm. elaborate on that? This is one of my favorite areas of research because I think it's really helpful for people who inhabit many demanding roles. And what the research shows is that when we're making choices about how to organize our lives, that we are very, very good at adding. So this, you know, adding to our closets, but also adding to our schedules. Like, sure, I'll also volunteer for this. Sure, my kid will also sign up for that class. Sure, like we'll do this birthday party this weekend, but also, you know, um, show up for some community service event and, you know, also the do practice and homework and all the things. We're really good at adding. And what research shows is that folks systematically neglect subtracting as a behavioral life choice, as a, mm. as a life design choice. And with that, and moreover, what the research shows is that when we're overwhelmed, so I always think about like the rushed trip through Target where I'm really like stressed about time and running late. And all of a sudden I have a cart full of things that I probably don't need. Well, the research backs that up. When we're overwhelmed, when we're feeling cognitively tasked, we're even less likely to consider subtraction. We're even more likely to default to adding stuff to our calendars. And so what that research points to is that we have to be pretty deliberate, especially if you're a really busy, overwhelmed person, about taking things off our plate that are not serving us. And values fit in because they can help us clarify what is really important and what is less important. And what I recommend to people is to get pretty uh, habitual about the practice of subtracting recognizing that it isn't going to be something that happens automatically. Our brain does not default to subtracting. It defaults to adding. And if you want to have a calmer, saner life, you're going to need to get fairly deliberate about it. And for example, you can once a week when you're doing your to-do list, if you're an organized person, as I always aspire to be, but sometimes <laughs> fail, um, you know, when you're planning what's going to be on the calendar for the week, be deliberate about asking yourself, you know, what 
what are my values? What do I want to stand for this week? What feels really important? So for example, I really value some downtime and connecting with my kids doing nothing at all. That's really important to me. And so when I have a week where I don't have pockets of time to do that, I really get, dedicate myself to figuring out what can come off the calendar so that I can make time for that thing that is really core to how I want to show up as a fa- us to show up as a family. Mm. Um, but again, it needs to be deliberate because we are so much more inclined to just add things. And when we add things, there tends to be a lot of trivial things that are in the mix. I mean, for a lot of people, it's, and I include myself in Brick, it sounds like you too. We spend a lot of time on social media. Yeah. But is that value aligned? Is that, and and if it is value aligned to some extent, but that you find you're using up a lot of your hours doing it and other things that are really important to you, that are really core to how you want to live your life are getting squeezed out, then it becomes this really interesting uh question and sort of practice of organizing your week, how much time do I want to allot? And then where do I want to set the boundary on, okay, that's too much because it's crowding out things that really matter. Hmm. I imagine this ties in to kind of the guilt as well, because if your value, like you said, is just kind of spending time with your kids where you're not really even doing much and you're just present with each other. And if that's a value you hold at your core, but then you're not taking a look at your calendar and finding space for that, then the next week you look back and then you just feel guilty because you never did that. And so are those things kind of connected, the subtracting and the guilt? Yeah, they definitely can be. But again, I encourage people to really look at that as information. So Uh if you missed a week with your kids, guess what? You have another week coming up. So use that as information to guide how you want to show up. For me, One of the things that I, and I am confident that I'm in good company, even when I do have that downtime with my kids, my mind is often spinning to all the work things that I didn't get to. And so then it's also a practice of, and that, that I think for me is where my guilt comes in is when I am with them, but they can tell, and I know that I'm not fully present because Mm -hmm. my mind is somewhere else. And that feels really crummy to me because I, I, you know, they're talking to me and I'm not absorbing what it is that they're saying. And so that's a, a note to me that I really need to be more mindful and bring my attention back into the present moment and really deliberately focus in on them. But again, you know, that guilt is a really useful cue. Mm-hmm. I, I am neglecting uh, full attention to them and, and I do really care to be very connected and present with them. Not all the time, but like yeah. certainly <laughs> in pockets where they're telling me about their day, I would like to not, you know, be absorbed in my phone. Um, and so that guilt is really a cue, like, okay, like I, I dropped the ball on that. And sometimes we'll even talk about it. Oh, shoot, you know, mom got caught up in her phone. Let me put that away. And can you, you know, would you be willing to try to tell me again? Because I, I really care to know. Mm, yeah. It, so much of what you're saying, I think you kind of lead with compassion in the way you treat yourself. And I think, maybe it can be tempting to just kind of beat yourself up as a parent. And really, if you take the more compassionate route, you are able to see, like you said, the data or the cues more clearly. A hundred percent. I have the benefit of the all the science that I, you know, immerse myself in and being a therapist to practice compassion, but it really has allowed me to be a much more loving parent to, to my kids as well as a loving friend to myself. And I am by no means perfect. I, I, but it's, and it's a work in progress, but you know, in the early side of parenting, I really struggled with it. And so it became a very deliberate practice. So I, I do want to just take note, like self-compassion and, and compassion more generally is a muscle. It's a skill. And that is something that we can absolutely approach with a growth mindset. If you struggle to be kind and gentle to yourself that is where you begin. That is not where you have to end. It's like learning a new language and it might feel really funny on your tongue to say kind things and to give yourself a break and, and offer yourself grace for for totally screwing up. But the more you practice it, the more opportunities you have to build that muscle. And the more that muscle is built, the better able you will be to show up to the roles that you care about in ways that are value aligned. Wow. Well, one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Hmm. I think the health investment that is really important is to figure out how you can live a very meaningful life. And 
psychology researchers define happiness in in a whole in in a variety of ways, but the way that really resonates for me is the definition that really suggests that happiness is about living a life that is embedded with meaning and purpose and really investing in your meaning and purpose. And what's really wonderful about being a working parent, or even if you're not a working parent, being somebody who occupies multiple roles that you care about, is that we can really enhance we can really access pockets of meaning and purpose in a lot of different ways, both through the individual roles that we have, but also sort of in combination that we're making a difference for our kids and we're making a difference through our public contributions and our work. We're making a difference through volunteer activities. We're making a difference in the hobbies that we participate in or as partners or as friends. And really seeing that as an important investment, not just a luxury, but an opportunity to make your life more meaningful and recognizing that as you do, it leaves a positive mark on the world. Mm. Well, I know everybody is going to want to connect with you on the social media platforms we've mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Where can they follow and find you? Um, So I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, Yael Schoenbrunn should help you find me. It is a tip tricky name to spell. It's Y-A-E-L-S-C-H-O-N-B-R-U-N. And you can also find me on my writing website, which is workparentthrive.com. And finally, you can also find me on my podcast that I co-host, which is called Psychologists Off the Clock, where we talk about topics in evidence-based psychology in ways that are hopefully accessible and fun. We have lots of guests on, just as you do, about various topics. Work and parenthood are two of the topics, but, but we explore lots, lots and lots of others as well. Awesome. Well, I am going to link all of those places that you just mentioned in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so, so much for sharing your time with us today. I learned a ton, as I'm sure my audience did as well. And I'm just very grateful for this conversation. Oh, I'm really grateful for you, Brooke. You, you, I love your podcast. And thank you so much for the honor of having me on. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.